Victor, we lead the church here. And um, I became a Christian uh, as a teenager. And it happened like this. I basically, while I was singing a worship song, had a revelation of who, who Jesus is, or at least a, a much better idea of who Jesus is. At that time, Jesus Christ had really been my part-time helper, and he had helped me out, and I had prayed uh, occasionally from time to time, and that had been helpful, and, uh, uh, but he was just really around when I needed him, and, uh, and that was enough for me. And while I was singing, I had a revelation that Jesus was something different from that, that he is actually God, that who lives from eternity to eternity, in whom all things hold together, all molecules in the universe hold together through Jesus. So I had really liked Jesus as my savior, as my rescuer, as my helper. But now, for the first time in my life, I submitted to him as Lord. It was a sudden realization that I needed to show some humility before the King of Kings. And um, so that was, a, that was a moment, really, when I stepped into life with Jesus, recognizing who he is as I, made a, uh, uh, as I was drawn to a, a, a moment, and I pray, a life of humility before God. And uh, it made me think of a thing that Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, said, that when he was on the moon, uh, he was looking at the earth, and the earth to him was about the size of a blue pea. And when he was standing on the moon, he put his thumb up like this, and then he closed one eye, and he could blot out the moon, uh, the, the earth, with his thumb. And you might think uh, that would lead you to one or more particular emotions, but Neil Armstrong particularly said this. He said, when I did that, I didn't feel like a giant. I actually felt very, very small. And I think that was something of the thing for me, where in my life that f thus far, I had tried to put my thumb out and close my eye and blot out Jesus. Uh, and that led me towards actually a moment of humility rather than a moment of um, self-aggrandizement. And Colossians, this letter that we've been reading for the last few weeks, is a really short letter. It's really packed. It's really dense. And, and it has an absolutely cosmic scope. And what it, what it seeks to do and what the writer, St. Paul, seeks to do is to present, essentially present Jesus Christ to its hearers and to its readers. If you like, the whole of Scripture uh, is a really a mosaic which reveals the face of Christ. And this microcosm, this very short letter, and in places a little bit obscure, uh, does its best to present Jesus Christ to us. And so uh, our passage is short, but it does need a little bit of explaining, and I want to do it in terms of presenting Jesus to us and to see the big picture before we see the small picture. And the big picture is this that when Jesus Christ enters history, it absolutely changes everything. You may, you may or may not be conversant with the Bible. It's a big book. But the first half of the book, or the first two-thirds of the book, we call the Old Testament. It's about this much, I guess. And uh, it's, it's called the Old Testament because it refers to a previous age or era in people's relationship towards God. Uh, the people of God started forming around Abraham, who was early on, and then through Moses and their deliverance from uh, slavery, through the Promised Land, through kings like David and Solomon, through exile to Babylon and the prophets. 
the people of God at that time generally consisted of one racial, geographical, and cultural unit. So one racial unit, they were the Hebrews. One geographical unit, essentially they were in a certain part of the Middle East and uh, they got into the Promised Land. And also one cultural unit, they had ways of connecting with God that involved law and sacrifice and festivals and Sabbath and all those things. And you may well have read, read the Old Testament well, you may have never have opened it. But this is what it describes. And this people, this one geographical and cultural and racial unit, were supposed to be a light to the nations, to all the nations around them, and a light to witness to the one true God who is, tr who is God of the heavens and the earth, the one who holds everything together, all the molecules together. And they looked forward to an age at the end of time when God would send the Messiah, who would come at the end of all things and make everything right and make the loving, creative, and joyful rule of God available to all. And this longing was really strong at the time of Jesus' birth, which we celebrate at Christmas, because everyone was really living under Roman oppression, under their cruel empire. And so the people of God fiercely kept their identity during that time through the multiple practices that accrued around the law, led by the Pharisees. And they may be some people that you have heard of. And so that is the first part of the scriptures, if you like. And the second part, Christians call the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you see that God loved the world so much. And if you're in doubt about that, you do need to know that that's the essential posture of God towards the world, that he loves the world so much that he sent his son Jesus, the Messiah, not at the end of time, but brought him forward right into the middle of a very brutal regime as a Palestinian Jew right in the middle of history. And his life, his life, if you have read the Gospels, the stories about Jesus Christ, his life demonstrated what it's like when a human being lives 100% under the loving rule of God, what's called his kingdom. And Jesus came to announce the kingdom. And he, and he also wanted to show what it's like when a human being lives 100% under the kingdom. And what it's like is that the sick get healed and evil is driven out, and sins are forgiven, and death is conquered. It's generally good news. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at me, says Jesus. If you, don't want, to, if you want, don't want to know what it's like to live fully in the kingdom of God, then look at what I'm doing. Check out these things that I'm doing. The sick get healed, the lame walk, and so on. And God's heart is demonstrated through Jesus' compassion and self-sacrificial love, both to friends and to outcasts and to enemies. Now, this way of life, living 100% under God's kingdom, inevitably leads him into conflict with the political, religious, and even demonic powers that run the world. And they do run the world. And they put him to death by crucifixion, nailing him to a cross, and as St. Paul says in the passage we looked at last week and Joe spoke about, evil nails him to the cross, but Jesus turns the table and nails evil to the cross, disarming the powers and authorities, triumphing over them. It's an extraordinary reversal that happens on the cross. And then God raises Jesus from the dead, destroying death. 
making available God's kingdom, not just to one unit, but to everybody, to everyone, the likes of you and me if you don't have Jewish heritage. God sends his spirit to everyone so that everyone can receive the presence of God as they turn towards him. As the, as the prophets say, old and young, slave and free, rich and poor, all can get access to the spirit of God. Now this, are you tracking with me? Enough? Okay. This is a little bit more dense today, but it's important. So this really sets the cat amongst the pigeons. As faith in God, through Jesus, starts to break out amongst all kinds of people after Jesus' death and resurrection. People who don't have a clue about Jewish heritage, about the first part, what we call the first part of the scriptures, the Old Testament. People who have no idea about this sort of stuff. These kinds of ways of approaching and connecting with God. They're coming to know God simply through putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And the passion of St. Paul's life, who wrote the words we heard earlier, the passion of his life is that these two really opposed groups, what are called the Jews and the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, that they become one people based on this one faith in Jesus Christ. That's what really animates St. Paul. And if you read his letters, you can see that appearing again and again and again. This is what he wants because there is a way to God through Jesus Christ that's opened up as he comes into the world. So he spends a lot of time helping both Jews and Gentiles who are turning to Christ, the Messiah and the Savior of the world, to be the church together, getting different people together to love one another in church. And that has been a project throughout history, and it's always been a difficulty for the church, hasn't it? Loving one another, because as Jesus calls people, people come from very different backgrounds and very different ways of being. But that's, that was Paul's passion and it's the Lord's passion for his church that, w- that we as a community display the wisdom of God because he can say, look, I can put all these people together and they love one another. So, in the sweep of history, Jesus, uh, Christians claim that Jesus is the hinge of history. Everything revolves around this one person, Jesus Christ. And everything changes for us when he comes into the world. Everything is different because he comes in. So it's no surprise then that Paul, if we, if we condense it down to you and me now, it's no surprise that Paul here talks about an individual becoming a Christian in very dramatic terms because Jesus entering into history is very dramatic and Jesus entering into your life and my life is also very dramatic. So he, he talks about it in terms of death and life. Because when Jesus enters our life, it changes everything. We become a new creation. And it's as big as moving from death to life, says Paul. Or it should be like that. And the picture St. Paul painted last week, which Joe spoke about, was that before conversion to Christ before Jesus breaking in on our world that we were in verse 13 dead in sin he says and what that means is that we were overwhelmed and driven by malign forces beyond ourselves under the control of habits and compulsions and desires and addictions which led us to places 
which are bad, and an inability to live right before God. Verse 13, so God made you and me alive together with him. Verse 14, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us. No more guilt and shame, that means. It's nailed to the cross. Those forces that, come, that were coming against us are dealt with by Jesus. He disarmed and triumphed over the visible and invisible rulers and authorities that run the world, verse 13. So all these kinds of things Jesus has done. See, the truth is that he has overcome, through the cross and the resurrection, every force that was against you. Our broken and hostile world, our own broken humanity, and demonic forces, what has sometimes turned the world and the flesh and the devil. These are the things that come against us. And so as Jesus has overcome these things, you and I are able to respond to his invitation into life with him. Jesus has done everything to put you and me in a place where his grace and love can sweep us off our feet because he has done that already. And when you become a Christian, you die with Jesus. It's dramatic language, but you die with Jesus and you rise to life with, Christ, with Jesus. If you have been baptized, you will know, if you can remember it, if you've been baptized, you'll know that you go into water and it symbolizes dying with Jesus and dying to the old life and the old way of life. That's going down into the water. And when you're pulled up, thankfully, out of the water, then, you, uh, then that symbolizes rising with Christ and rising to new life. And it has to be that way. It has to be a, a moment, a time where we, we thoroughly decide to go God's way, that we humble ourselves as I did when I was a teenager and, and, we, and we say, yes, Lord, I'm going to say, I'm dying with you to the old things and I want to rise with you to the new things. There has to be a disjunction. Even though there's lots of process around it, there has to be uh, a radical moment, a radical break. So we come to verse 20, and if you're tracking with the passage, Colossians 2 verse 20, this is the key verse in the little bit that we are doing here, where Paul says, with Christ you died to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. I don't know if you would consider yourself to have done that, dying to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, you died to the spiritual forces that are fueling our broken and hostile world. They have no claim on you anymore. You don't have to be ruled by them because you are dead to them. You're dead to them. You don't have to live according to them anymore. As Gideon said at the beginning, uh, our kids' worker, uh, Lauren, got married to James yesterday. It was a beautiful ceremony. We went there. And it just reminded me that... The people getting married, they make promises to love and to cherish one another, etc., 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 till death us do part. The death of one partner ends a marriage. And what Paul is saying here is that we were wedded to the forces of the world, to the elemental forces of the world that run the world, if you like, that lead us away from God. And we were wedded to those that our death, as we die with Christ, frees us from that. He says we are free from that. If you like a toxic marriage to uh, 
the way the world is. So putting a little bit of flesh on the bone, last Sunday Joe listed a few of what you might call the elemental forces of the world or the drivers in the world as it is right now. And they're sometimes difficult to spot, but it is the water that we swim in. She had a good list of them. I just want to mention three. Do you recognize these as being true of, what, of the way the world is now? Here's the first one. It's, the, it's uh, the encouragement to be true to yourself. To be true to yourself. Now, as a Christian, what I would say to you is, if you really knew me and what goes on inside myself, you wouldn't want me always to be true to myself. You would want me to be true to something better than myself. And that's why I want to. Is I made it my goal to become more like Jesus Christ, who is 100% living in the kingdom of God. But that's a driver in the world. And then becoming a Christian frees us from that. It frees us for something more, in fact. Here's a second one that Joe mentioned last week. If it feels right, do it, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Now, now that I'm a Christian, I guess what I feel uh, strongly is that things are right if God indicates or says that they're right. They come from the rightness of his heart and the rightness of his thoughts. And my feelings, I know for sure, are not a good guide about how I should live best. Not all my desires are good, and I would suggest not all of your desires are good either. I trust that God knows me much, much better than I can ever know myself. Here's a third one. You live your truth and I'll live mine. That's a popular way of understanding reality. But now that I'm a Christian... I'm not sure I really get to define what reality is. Does God know better than me what is good and right and true? I hope so. I think so. And frankly, it's a relief. It's a relief that uh, God is truth in himself. And he reveals that to me, and I do my best to appropriate it. So when you become a Christian, there is this decisive death-to-life moment with living the way that our broken world does. It's a simple and profound reality, and it's a good description about being saved from forces both inside and outside ourselves that lead us nowhere good. So I just want to ask today, do you know that reality? Do you know that reality that you have died to the forces of the world with Christ? You've died with Christ, and also that you have been raised to new life with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it is... It is a crucial thing to know. And sometimes these things take place over time. Sometimes they take place like that. But St. Paul is very clear that the Colossians know that they have died with Christ. And that's a thing that we can know. That we've died with Christ and that we've been raised with Christ. And I just want to really ask that of yourself today. Now, finally, in a few moments... We come to the short point of this passage. So we are in uh, two, uh, Colossians 2, verse, what is it, 16 onwards? I think so, yeah. So every Christian, what he's saying here, someone who has died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world and who's been raised to life, a new life, every Christian, therefore, is equal before God. Every Christian is equal before God. We all needed God. 
We all needed to die to our old ways and we all needed to be raised to new life. Everyone gets to God on the same basis. Everyone in this room does. Everyone in the world. And we get there through his grace and mercy towards us and our thankful response. And this truth should therefore guide us how we treat one another as Christians. So it was really shocking when Christians started doing their stuff in the Roman world because they went around saying that all human beings were equal in the sight of God and the Romans definitely didn't believe that because the Romans believed that they were better than everyone else. But on top of that, Christians should be guided about how they treat fellow Christians because each one becomes a Christian on the same basis, being forgiven and coming into the grace of God and dying to the old ways and rising to the new. So all of us are equal before God, whether you're rich or poor, young or old, black or white, man or woman, upper class or working class, straight or gay, left or right, indigenous or immigrant, whatever. We're all equal before God. And in Paul's day, as I said before, the thing that really animated him was that both Jews, the people with the long history with God, and Gentiles, people who came from everywhere else, that they were also equal before God because they came before God through Jesus in the same way. So he warns these Colossians. This is what this passage is about. He warns them against letting any ordinary mortals in the church do what the powers had failed to do, which was to disqualify them and, and remove them from the church. If you see verse 16, he says, look, don't let anyone judge you because you don't hold properly to Jewish annual festivals and customs. And verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you because they come across as super spiritual and make out that you're not. He says, hold firm. Despite anything they say, because it's actually though they have lost touch with Jesus, verse 19, who's the head of the church, who nourishes everyone and holds everyone together. They've forgotten the essential equality of all believers before God. And lastly, he says in verse 20, after the decisive break where you became a Christian, he says, look, don't go back to the old ways. In their case, going back to the old Jewish regulations about what they could associate with or not. He says those rules were part of an earlier part of the journey and do not work. But now Christ has entered decisively into history and he's entered decisively into your life on the basis of grace. You should live freely. And the power of the Spirit will enable you to do just that. So... Just winding back to the beginning, it, it was a wonderful and dangerous thing for me to grasp more of who Jesus is, that the whole of human history revolves around him, that he invites me to die with him and rise with him, and to realize what he's done for me, that he has made it possible for me to be forgiven and know God and to live freely and to take my place in the church. And I want to dare you today, whether you're a Christian or not, to look closer at Jesus Christ. Look closer. Even if you've known Jesus for 50 years, 
if you contemplate him, take some time to look at him again. Read the scriptures like these scriptures in Colossians. And just look at him again and be amazed at who he is and what he's done. It will continually change your life. Continually. If you are not a Christian here today, I just want to say he invites you today into love and friendship with him. To die to the old ways and rise to the new. That's his invitation to you. And I can say when I did it, I have never regretted that a single day, taking up that invitation. And if you are a believer, Jesus invites you to see him new and fresh. To look deeper into him and to see him new and fresh and to take the knee in awe and wonder before him at his beauty. Just to see again how marvelous he is. And then also to see, as St. Paul says, your brothers and sisters in this room afresh. And how with fresh compassion and delight, you can know them and love them too. So, I know that's been pretty dense today, and that's denser than my usual stuff. But St. Paul is dense, I blame him. But I do, I, 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 I do think that this is a moment to see Jesus presented afresh to you wherever you are at in your spiritual journey. And he will satisfy the desires of your heart. I, it says that in scripture, and I trust that and truly believe that. So shall we stand, take a moment of prayer?